Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it's Albert. I'm fired up to bring you this week's show. We've got three guests. That's right, three guests to help break down the draft process and what's going on inside NFL teams over the next few days. We have an inside look at the top 10 of the draft, what I'm hearing inside the top 10 of the draft. And of course, we get to all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. It's draft week, it's the Albert Freer Show. I cannot wait to get you guys to our special guests. That's right, guests, plural. We've got three of them this week to help take you inside the draft process, take you inside what's happening in war rooms over the next three or four days. We're going to get to your questions in the six-pack, of course. Normally, we'd start the show with takeaways, but this being draft week, as we've done in the past, I know you want to hear what I'm hearing, and so we're going to take you through the top 10 picks and total chalk at the top, right? In a way, Thursday night has been in the making for 27 months now. We've really known since January 7th of 2019 who the first pick in the 2021 draft was going to be. I spent the last two years confirming it. Trevor Lawrence is going to be a Jacksonville Jaguar. And look, now for Shad Khan, he's hitching his organization to two guys, Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence. And it's a great situation potentially for both of them. Urban Meyer has all kinds of assets to build with, a ton of picks in this year's draft, multiple picks in five of the draft's seven rounds. They still have a very clean salary cap going forward. Again, a great spot for for Urban Meyer to be taking his swing at being an NFL head coach and an opportunity to build a great situation for Trevor Lawrence. And we all know how important the situation around a young quarterback is to that young quarterback making it. And look... I mean, we haven't talked a lot about it over the last three months because it's been sort of a fait accompli that he's going to be the first pick. But, I mean, this is again, – I hate using the word generational. We throw it around too much. I think there are two, two prospects in this draft that the word generational applies to, and one of them is Trevor Lawrence. Uh, and I, I think the best way to illustrate it is to give you four names. John Elway, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, Trevor Lawrence. I'm not saying that Trevor Lawrence is going to become John Elway or Peyton Manning. I'm not saying Trevor Lawrence is going to have the start to his career that Andrew Luck did. Just saying as far as entering the NFL, like the way that the league looks at at him, like that's the group that he's in. And really, I think the way you want to look at this, right, if you want to separate how the league looks at these guys versus everybody else, again, so much of 
this like comes down to for a young quarterback the situation that they're thrown into. What's their offensive line look like? Who are they throwing to? Who are they being coached by? Who's putting together the football operation within the organization that they're drafted into? The guys that we're talking about here, I think the NFL sort of views them as being able to overcome circumstances, being able at a young age to maybe cancel out some of the negatives within their organizations. And we saw it with some of these guys, too. I mean, Andrew Luck walked into a rebuilding situation, a cap nightmare in Indianapolis, and made the playoffs as a rookie, made it around further in year two, made it around further than that in year three, got to the conference championship game in just his third year in the league. Now, injuries wound up getting the best of him. John Elway, early in his career, I, I think you'd argue the teams around him were just okay. Got to three Super Bowls in his first seven years. Um, and we've seen Peyton Manning lift the talent people around him. Um, the defenses in Indianapolis at times weren't great. He had really good offensive talent around him, but um, he was able to be a centerpiece um, for an organization very early in his career. So Trevor Lawrence is in that group. Uh, we also know at this point who the number two pick is going to be. It'll be BYU's Zach Wilson. Um, not nearly as clear a number two as Trevor Lawrence is a number one, though. I can tell you that I've talked to a, a number of teams that don't need quarterbacks that view Justin Fields as the second-best quarterback in this draft class. Now, they're not grinding the guys the same way that the Jets and the Jaguars have grinded these guys. you know. But I, I think that there's some question here as to Zach Wilson's size, the jump in performance from 2019 to 2020, the level of competition in 2020, the guy's got fantastic tools and the comp I've heard for him is Aaron Rodgers. And if that's what he becomes, I mean, it'll change the jets franchise. I mean, you know, that's what we're talking about. You know, Zach Wilson having the potential to do, but I don't think this is a slam dunk the same way. Trevor Lawrence is a slam dunk. Um, and I don't think any of the, the, the quarterbacks outside of Trevor Lawrence are a slam dunk. And so pressure is going to be on Joe Douglas. Pressure is going to be on Rob Sala to build the team around Zach Wilson and give him the right environment. Makai Becton, first round last year, that was a good start. Michael Floor coming in as the offensive coordinator, I think that's a really, really smart hire, and it's going to be good for a young quarterback to be in that system. In fact, I think he would have been good for, for Sam Darnold a couple of years ago if circumstances were different for Darnold. So, you know, I, like, I, I really like the idea of Zach Wilson in New York. I think handling New York is going to be interesting for him coming from Utah. Um, and I think there are some things set up for him to succeed there, but there's a lot of pressure on the Jets organization to get more things right around Zach Darnold, Zach Zach Wilson, than they had right around Sam Darnold over the last three years. The third picks were sort of the rubber meets the road, and what the Niners do, like I think, will sort of chart the course for where the, how the rest of the top ten goes. Uh, I again like. Look, I, look, I would tell you that if you're a Niners fan, trust Kyle Shanahan. Um, they, I don't think there's been anybody better at developing an offensive vision, developing quarterbacks, putting quarterbacks in the right position over the last 13 years in the NFL, I would say, than, than Kyle Shanahan. We saw what he did with Matt Schaub and Houston. We saw what he did for Andre Johnson in Houston, you look in Washington, they were able to be competitive their first couple of years there, despite having a black hole at the quarterback position. They bring in Robert Griffin for that one year. He's electric. Now, there are some 
internal politics. I mean, that organization is what it is. There were some internal politics that got in the way of of that really t- being taken to the next level. But I mean, like he developed Kirk Cousins while he was there. And, you know, like then you look at like being able to be competitive with with Brian Hoyer in Cleveland, taking Matt Ryan to an MVP level in Atlanta, getting to the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo in San Francisco. I would just trust his judgment on this decision. And I do think the decision is going to be Mac Jones. Um, And I think if you talk to enough people around who've been around Mac Jones at Alabama, you start to get it talked to some of Mac Jones's teammates. I've talked to, you know, Steve Sarkeesian, the offensive coordinator there. And the way the guy carries himself, his competitiveness, the way he processes his football IQ, all that stuff's off the charts. And I think that stuff counts. And I can give you a story of a team that, you know, met with him a couple a couple months ago. Uh, they started installing stuff with him just to see his retention. And they come back, you know, this was last week or the week before, right, right, right in the last couple of weeks, and asked him, what's the first play we installed? Not the first concept, not the first package. What's the first play we installed? He spit it right out. I think that's a perfect illustration of what you're talking about. A guy who I think is, you know, seen as this sort of, I think kind of a cut above the rest of the quarterback class when it comes to that sort of stuff. So I think Mac Jones is going to be the third pick. It wouldn't stun me at all if Kyle Shanahan pulls a rabbit out of his hat and goes in a different direction with the third pick. Um, Trey Lance, a good schematic fit, no question about it. I mean, going back to the summer, I've heard there's a fit there as far as you know that offense, the offense that Kyle Shanahan runs, and Trey Lance's skill set. Um, Trey Lance has a long way to go. Um, you know, I think that there's definitely some things you have to look at there with Trey Lance that are a little scary. You didn't see him in a lot of critical situations because North Dakota State is blowing everybody out. You didn't see him playing from behind a lot. It's hard to find third and long. It's hard to find games where he's throwing the ball a lot. He threw the ball just 10 times against 30 runs in the national championship game two years ago. So there's just there's a lot of things to sort through with Trey Lance where you're projecting a lot. Now, that said, physical ability is there, and the makeup is really good. He's done awesome in his meetings. He's proven to be really smart, come off well to these teams. So I think in that way, the Josh Allen comparison is is an apt one where you're looking at Josh Allen and you're saying, okay, like if you're the Bills in 2018, a big part of the equation was we see the skill set here. Does he have what it takes from a makeup standpoint to make up the difference in development? They decided he did. They put him in a great environment and made it work. And now they've got a you know, what I think they believe is an ideal quarterback situation for the next decade, it's going to be similar with Trey Lance where you're going to have to get him in a situation like he, like so much of what happens with him is going to boil down to a situation. Like I think he has the makeup. I think he has a skill set. how the development goes going to be, I think contingent on giving him the sort of situation that Josh Allen had in Buffalo. Um, number four, the Atlanta Falcons. My feeling right now is that they're going to wind up moving um, Julio Jones, like I'm not positive they're going to wind up. They're going to try to move Julio Jones during draft week, uh, and that leaves a hole for a kind of uh, like a queen on the chessboard type of uh, type of skill player. I think that queen on the chessboard type of skill player for them is going to be Kyle Pitts. A um, couple of reasons why I feel that way. Look at Terry Fontenot's history and where he's coming from. In New Orleans, effectively over the last five years, they were able to rebuild around an aging quarterback. 
And when they really hit with that 2017 draft class that sort of rejuvenated the franchise and created a new championship window for them, Drew Brees was three years older than Matt Ryan is right now. He's 38 years old. Matt Ryan is now 35. And by drafting Alvin Kamara and Ryan Ramchick and Marcus Williams and Marshawn Lattimore and Alex Anzalone and Trey Hendrickson, they were able to pump life into the organization and create a new championship window. I look at Terry Fontenot's ability to be a part of that in New Orleans, and maybe he can do it in Atlanta. And I think with, you know, if you look at some of the relationship building stuff, both Terry and Arthur Smith have done with Matt Ryan. It doesn't look like it's a guy they're getting set to wave goodbye to. And so my guess right now would be, Let's go forward for the next year or two with Matt Ryan as our quarterback. Let's clean up our cap situation. Let's see if we can draft well enough to build a winner here the same way the perpetually cap-strapped Saints did around Drew Brees starting four years ago. So I'm going with Kyle Pitts at number four. Number five, you've heard a lot of the Panay Sewell, Jamar Chase talk. I think this is going to wind up being Jamar Chase. The Bengals have done a lot of work on round two, round three linemen. That tells me they're looking at what it would look like if they took Chase in the first round and tried to shore up their offensive line with their picks on Friday. Um, and I can tell you that LSU people think that Jamar Chase is going to be the fifth pick. People around Jamar Chase think Jamar Chase is going to be the fifth pick. I think it would be a nice gift to their quarterback, Joe Burrow, of course, um, to give him the opportunity, to give him the opportunity to play with a guy that he was so good with at LSU in 2019 so i'm going with jamar chase with the fifth pick that would set up an interesting scenario for the dolphins at six where you know it sounded to me like chris greer when he traded back up from 12 to six that was really in essence a six team trade but wanting to stay in the top six there were a couple guys that he liked i think those couple guys were kyle pitts and jamar chase and if both those guys are gone i think it puts the dolphins in an interesting situation i think if they, those guys are gone they would explore moving back down for they like both the alabama receivers um jalen waddle and Devonte smith do they like them enough to take them that high i'm not sure uh, you know and i also think panay sewell would be a consideration there a chance to kind of fix your offensive line once and for all and yeah you're throwing extra resources at it um, you did go out and you know sign DJ Fluker. You've got you know Austin Jackson, a first round pick last year. You've got you know Robert Hunt, who you'd have to move inside the guard to accommodate all of this. But it would be a you know an opportunity to try to take care of your offensive line again once and for all, sort of in the way Dallas did um, almost a decade ago now, where they spent three first round picks in a four year stretch on Tyron Smith, Zach Martin, and Travis Frederick. So. I think Panay Sewell would be an interesting pick, and I would, I would actually, you know, I, I would actually think that'd be a really smart pick, but I wouldn't rule out the Alabama receivers. In my mock, I gave them Jalen Waddle at number seven. You know, I know the Lions have a crying need at receiver. I don't think they're going to take a receiver here. I can't find people who know Dan Campbell that think they're going to take a receiver here. So, you know, I, I think we're looking at either the two offensive linemen, Panay Sewell or Rashawn Slater. You're looking at potentially a linebacker, Micah Parsons, the Chris Spielman influence there or you're looking at a trade down. And I think a trade down would be an ideal an ideal conclusion for Brad Holmes, their new general manager. They only have a half dozen picks this year. They've got multiple first-rounders in 22 and 23. This is going to be a slow build. This is going to be a methodical build. And that's why I think picking an offensive lineman here makes all the sense in the world. 
you're building a foundation, you know, you're not, you know, you're not decorating the upstairs master bedroom. You're, you're, you're building a foundation and you do that on the lines of scrimmage. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a good chance an offensive lineman goes here. I gave him Panay Sewell in my mock. I think they'd be doing backflips if he was still there. Um, Anthony Lynn, their offensive coordinator, was out at Oregon at Panay Sewell's pro day. You know, you figure out what you're going to do with Sewell and Taylor Decker, their big money left tackle. But that's an issue that I think you can work out. Just get a really good player in the building if you're in year one, like Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell are. Uh, at number eight, you know, the Carolina Panthers are an interesting one. You know, we've mentioned their 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 love for Justin Fields over the last couple of weeks. Um, I think that Justin Fields is a very real possibility there. There is a relationship between the head coach at Carolina in Matt Rule and the head coach at Ohio State and Ryan Day. I also can tell you that um, you know the owner David Tepper, you know during those GM interviews back in January, um, had expressed how he wants to throw resources at getting the quarterback position right to potential candidates, and this would be another resource you're throwing at it. And I think if and I I know I've heard a lot of that argument, like okay, like does it make sense to have both Justin Fields and Sam Darnold? Well, think about what you would have spent on Deshaun Watson. And I know Darnold and Fields aren't Watson. But let's just take the Deshaun Watson thing off the table. It's it's not there right now, right? So you're spending less resources. You're taking two shots at it. You're spending less money on it. And if one of those guys hits, and both those guys are very, very like like high-end talents, just physical talents, both are under 24 years old, then it's absolutely worth the eighth pick in the draft, a second rounder, a fourth rounder, and a sixth rounder. To me... Like that's 100% worth it if you get the quarterback position right. And by bringing Fields in and letting him compete with Darnold, you're giving yourself two shots at it. So, you know, I know some people have said, well, that wouldn't make sense. It totally makes sense to me because there's nothing more important than getting that position right. If it's not a quarterback, I think they will look at the idea of trading down. I don't think they're going to want to go too far down um, like other teams. I think Detroit's in this bucket too. Um, there's a limit to how far teams want to go back this year because there is a cliff because a lot of teams are going to be into their second round grades in the late teens. Um, I think there's a little bit of a reluctance to go too far back, but you know, I think Carolina would also look at the idea of going back in my mock. I did give them fields at number nine. The Broncos have been outside of the top three, probably the quarterback hungriest team. And I think that there's an opportunity. There's a chance that maybe, maybe they trade up. I don't know if they go all the way up to four with Atlanta. I don't know if they go up to six. Maybe seven makes sense with Detroit because Detroit's willing to deal, and that would get them past Carolina. Um, Justin Fields or Trey Lance wouldn't shock me here. Um, I mean, look, like you know, George Payton, the new general manager. Uh, you know, this is this is going to again, like be uh, like th- th- this is this is going to be like a year of evaluation I think in Denver and so they can afford to take the time to develop a quarterback there I think a lot of parts of that organization are going to be evaluated in 2021 um, and I do think that they're wide open as far as their needs go like nothing would surprise me here except a receiver I think they're fine at receiver other than a receiver I they're they, they could go a number of different directions one per, one direction Micah Parsons could be in play here Vic Fangio, like from what I understand, really likes the idea of, of, of Micah Parsons. You could bring him in, fill a needed inside linebacker. If you lose Von Miller next year, now you're talking about a guy who can create some pass rush for you too from that position. So Micah Parsons would make some sense. But 
you know, with the opportunity to be drafting this high and the quarterbacks there, um, I think Fields or Lance would be a real consideration. And my mock, I gave them Lance. Finally, at number 10, the Dallas Cowboys. Look, I haven't heard any player in this year's draft connected to a team um, outside of the obvious ones, like outside of like the top three in the quarterbacks um, and Atlanta and Kyle Pitts. Um, more strongly than I've heard Patrick Sertan connected to the Cowboys. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but they've done a ton of work in the corners. Sertan and J.C. Horn are close for some teams. Some teams actually like J.C. Horn more than Patrick Sertan. But I think Sertan makes sense for Dallas. He's a good scheme fit for Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn's got the relationship with Nick Saban. Patrick Sertan's coming from Nick Saban's program. So a lot of things line up about it, especially like you look at a guy who's been playing under pressure his whole career, right? Like his whole life, right? Like, you know who his dad is. His dad's a former pro bowl corner, played at a high profile high school program in Florida, played at the highest profile college program. It sounds to me like a guy who'd be ready for the big stage. Um, the Dallas Cowboys afford to all of their players. I'm looking forward to giving you this conversation with three ex NFL GMs. We will get to those guys right after this. All right, I'm fired up to do this. Um, you know, three guys who I covered um, coming in to help us out with this and um, really give you guys an idea of what draft week is like for, from the standpoint of the person who has their finger on the trigger, the person who has real skin in the game. And so to do that, we've assembled a GM roundtable. Um, and I'm really, really pumped to bring in former Jets GM Mike Tannenbaum, former Bills GM Doug Whaley, and former uh, Falcons GM. God, I skipped a beat there, Thomas. Sorry about that. Former Falcons GM, Thomas Dimitrov. Uh, fellas, first of all, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate you guys um, doing this. And, uh, you know, I want to start here because I think it's so interesting because every year we kind of go through all of this and we look at it. And, you know, what I've noticed is a lot of people like will look at a team's needs and say, okay, they got four needs and think, well, boom, 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 one, two, three, four. They're going to be able to fill all those needs. I think people have like a warped idea of what a good draft is. So I guess we'll go alphabetical order here. And so I can, we can go Dimitrov, Tannenbaum, Whaley. Um, what do you guys think constitutes, like when you look at it, what constitutes a good draft class for a general manager? How many hits are they? And really like, if you're coming out of it, like what makes you feel good looking back at a class that you might've had? Let's start by saying it really doesn't matter what Mel Kuyper thinks about us. I think we'd all agree <laughs> with that, right? When we look the next day and we see an A or B or a D, which I saw a lot of Ds from Mel over the years, that really doesn't matter. And in all seriousness, from a draft standpoint, I think we spend a lot of time creating a lot of different scenarios, at least in, in my past, about what we needed going into the draft. And, and I know there's a lot of debate, Albert, about needs-based and, and the best talent on the board. I, I believe in needs-based, but I definitely believe that it has to be the best talent in that need, need position. If you have two uh, you know, players, of course, and you need them both, one's a little less in the need, but is exponentially better, well, then that's the proper choice in my mind. I just wanted to make sure I made that clear. So in all, when I look across our boards and any of the draft picks that we've had and the drafts that we had, I want to make sure that we've stayed, you know, very clean and true to our process. And that's a big, big thing for me to know that what I've been working on for 14 months with our scouting group and with our coaching staff, 
over the last few months going into the draft that it's really important that we've gotten our needs. And again, those are our needs as we perceive them, not as you have perceived them as the media or the fan base is, because I think, uh, you know, both Doug and, and Mike would agree. We know our organizations and knew our organizations better than anyone else at all, ownership included. And uh, we had a really, really far, firm grasp of what we needed. And that was important for me to, to finish a draft feeling like I hit what I needed to hit and we needed to hit. Mike. Yeah, I agree with everything, you know, Thomas said, and sometimes there's extenuating circumstances behind the curtain, a contract issue or a player not performing to the extent that the organization needs them to. So, um, and one of the, you know, there's so many privileges running an organization. One of the challenges, sometimes you just got to eat it where people say, Oh, why would you draft this player? And, there's a pending suspension or there's things that are happening that at the time that you're making the pick, you just can't get into. And for me, I, I felt realistically, if in three years you could look back and say, Hey, we got three really good starters. I thought that was a productive draft. Of course you want to bat a thousand. Everybody does. You know, Thomas already mentioned it's, it's more than a 12 month a year process. And um, I think realistically, despite all that time you put in there, if you could get three quality starters, that's really a good draft. And Terry Bradway, someone I had the privilege of working with for 18 years, he always had a great line. He goes, you know, Mike, it's always a snapshot. And a good example of that is Justin Jefferson. So last year, Jefferson was the fifth wide receiver taken. And without question, you could say he had the best year of any wide receiver taken. So you would say, hey, Minnesota, A-plus, great job. But Let's see where we are in two years. And I promise you those rankings will change and change again. So it's really hard to judge where you are in the draft. You, in my opinion, three years is really the appropriate time. Doug? Yeah, I'll jump in. I think, uh, well, I know, Mike, you, you hit it on the head. For me, we used to always say, and I was always taught, do not judge your draft until year two or year three. Because that first year, where people get drafted, what players make teams are always dependent on different circumstances you want to see how they are playing in year two or year three and then rank okay I had a first round on him no he's a second rounder so one it lets you know that you overdrafted him or overgraded him two it helps you with your catalog so the next time you see a player that demonstrates those same skills you can say oh this guy's a second player second round pick for me I'll add it as a draft class, I add the draft picks plus the college free agents. So normally you're looking at anywhere from 18 to 23 to 25 players that you're bringing in off of that draft class, I say. I'll add not only the three starters that Mike brought up, but I think you should. we thought if we could have three major contributors, be it guys that play major roles and give you some minutes, and also play special teams and are valuable backups or situational starters. If you could get three starters and three of those contributors, we thought we hit it out of the park. Again, you always want to hit 100%, but that's not the way it goes. As I say in baseball, if you hit four out of 10, you're in the Hall of Fame and considered the best ever. So <laughs> another thing I have to bring up with like what Thomas brought up is the media. Everybody says this stuff, and I say, player may be sliding in the media's view, but 32 teams don't think he's sliding. So they don't have skin in the game. So it's easy for them to go out on a limb and say this and say that, and then look at us and say, we're wrong. But when they're wrong, 
no one's ever sitting there putting a ta- ta- tally of, oh, well, Mel Kuyper got this many right. And, and his rankings two years from now, they were way off. No one holds them accountable like we're held accountable. So that's why you have to block out all the noise. Well, you well, guys Doug, are that's... Thinking- Sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you guys articulated that so well. What I would also add, and I'm sure you guys would agree, there was so much involved within, like so many layers involved to get to that third year where you have successful picks. It's not just Mike and Doug and myself having a keen eye and thinking we haven't figured out. I mean, wow, you, you have to talk about the setup within the organization, the lay of the land, how players are playing, like Mike alluded to, you know, the contractual elements how your coaches are coaching and developing the players. And that's not a dart. That is the reality of it. Hopefully you have a group that understands the system very well. If you're talking about a defense and you're driven towards developing those players that we have all drafted to be the best they can be within that system. That's really important that a lot of people are on the same wavelength, which goes back to ultimate communication between the head coach and the general manager and the respective staffs to make sure there is a very clear understanding of what we are all looking for in the schemes that we're playing. Well, you guys like, like, so there's a lot to get to there, but I think the first thing was, I mean, you guys have all like worked with, you know, strong willed coaches, right? Like Thomas, you were in a very coach centric, you know, like place in new England. Uh, Mike, you worked with both Belichick and Parcells. Um, Doug, you were with Bill Cower. Um, and Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh, what sort of advantage are teams like that operating with? Like, cause you mentioned coaching there, Thomas. And I think that's a really interesting point. I've always thought about this. Like you draft a guy in the third or fourth round. And maybe at that point, the guy is like very specific, like what you're looking for, right? Like it's not just this super athlete who can do anything. And so if a team is going through three coaching changes in five years, well, then all of a sudden, like that third round pick's not a third round pick anymore. That third round pick might've been like a seventh round pick. I see you waving your hand there, Doug. Like what sort of advantage was it for you in Pittsburgh when you knew exactly like what you guys were looking for every year and things just, it was almost like one thing built on another, I would think. Right. Absolutely. I think that you have a better chance of success when you have continuity and especially starting at the top with the head coach and ownership and GM that triumvirate has to be on in lockstep and the longer you have that continuity in that system it's almost like a cheat code because we knew what we needed to be successful uh picking outside linebackers in the Steeler three four system we knew what we needed an inside linebacker so you know that those position specific characteristics that have been successful for you in the past and you stay within those guide rails and we did a study when I was in Pittsburgh, the times we missed on a player, we did not, it was between heart and smarts. And we went outside of what we normally do. And we thought we overthought things. And that's a lot of time can happen now, especially when you have so much time between the end of the season and the draft and all of this, next thing you know, people coming in and giving their two cents. Now you have a, a position coach a coordinator and a head coach adding extra layer of information into the system. So you have to be very careful. And the other thing that helped us propel us to success in Pittsburgh and what we started doing, especially with uh, Sean McDermott and his staff, I said, coaches, I don't, I want to put you in the best situation to succeed. And that's what you do with players. So you guys aren't scouts. 
So what we'd rather do, instead of you writing a lengthy report of his positives, negatives, and his overall summary, come in and tell us as scouts what the vision of this player would be if he was on our team. Now we can scope that vision and then compare it to the rest of the board or the rest of the free agent class and determine a value. So when the vision and value meet, you have a better chance of success and you have a better chance of putting that player in a position to be successful with the vision that the coaches have combined with what the scouts see in the player. Yeah. I think there's uh, like similar to what Doug's saying, like on the pro side of it, I would say like working for coach Parcells and Belichick, like in New York, there was a clear vision of exactly what the team and the organization was going to look like. And that permeated pro personnel, college personnel, how we did contracts, who got paid, who didn't. Um, so I think there was a lot of efficiencies in terms of everyone had a very clear understanding of what the prototype was, the type of player we wanted. With that said, front offices, in my mind, in part were created for having fundamental checks and balances. And I think one of the biggest challenges for a coach is when a player changes teams and now you want to get them in your new team, they're not the same player. Like they could be ascending, they could be descending. And having checks and balances is a really important part of team building and being efficient in your decision making. So I don't think any system is perfect, Albert. Um, I think there's pros and cons to all, but um, I did see it work at a really high and efficient level, uh, level when we were in New York. And then when I became GM, you know, I, I had two coaches in seven years, Eric Mangini and Rex Ryan, both fantastic relationships. And, um, you know, I felt like more times than not, you know, we got right. Um, one of the signs we had in our draft room, which I took from Mark Shapiro of the Cleveland Indians was in God, we trust for everybody else. We need data. And anytime we had a disagreement, I just wanted to make sure that we'd watch more tape or look at the numbers one more time and then try and make, take the ego out and say, Hey, what's the best decision for us? Not it's your guy or my guy, more of like, what's going to give us the best chance to win. Mike, that's a, it's a great point. I was going to say to you guys as well, I don't want to speak out of both sides of my mouth on the need element, but I'm sure we all, all three of us have that really strong recollection of the time when we needed so bad and I've been in that. I'll be, I'll be the first one. I'll raise my hand on. I can go to Vic Beasley and talk about we needed a defensive end so bad, a rush guy that was going to fit Dan Quinn's system, speed athletic. Of course, he came in that second year and led the league in sacks. And then all of a sudden he plummeted, right? He's out of the league now. That in the end, whether, how, however we determined that was, where it was, you know, was it a complete failure or what it was? The reality is we got caught up so much in the fact that we needed that position to complete our team, part of our team. And you have to be very careful with that. Need can guide you in a really good way if you're thought out and you're, you, you realize the positives, the pros and cons of that acquisition. But if you're doing it and you let ego get in the way from the general manager, from the head coach, and quite honestly, back to the coaches, from the coordinators down, we can clean this guy up. He may have A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z, but we have enough. So that's where I think keeping the egos, again, mine at the top in check, that we're going to change someone if they have been doing what they've been doing for a long time, uh, i.e. through their college career, it's pretty tough to think they're going to change and all of a sudden be someone that they're not. So that sounds like almost like, it sounds almost like you talk yourself into somebody if you have a need. Oh, there's, there's no question. Absolutely. But yeah, there's no question. I think we'd all say that. 
and yet you can't, you know, completely avoid your needs. That's an important thing. You can't, you can't go into a draft and, and think you're going to be around an organization long if you continue to bypass the holes in your roster and play with midliners and you're always going for the best and you got, a, you know, a stall of running backs out there that you've been spending high on. I think you have to be very smart. There's a fine line there personally, I think, but there's no question that I have been in the need department and unbelievably so. And I'd love to get the, you guys' response it has come, interestingly enough, in that D-line, D-N spot. That's a big deal. We all know how important that is. And there have been a lot of failures in that area, not just quarterbacks in the first round. Yeah, I, I like to say this, that like you said, Thomas, you got to keep the egos in check. And you work for Ron Hughes, and he gave me a saying that I, every draft cycle, I would say to our staff, we are not here to be right. We are here to get it right. So don't sit and fight for a player saying, I want to be right. It's the Buffalo Bills getting it right. And then another thing I, I, I thought was something that I wanted to talk about is when you talk about needs and pushing people up the, the board, and I always kept, and someone said this to me, and I forget who it was, but when you start drafting for needs, it's like closing time at a bar. Everybody looks like a tent. You don't want to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you try to stay away from drafting, drafting for needs. Yeah. Yeah. When, when the lights come on, there can be some surprises too, right? You know, you know, <laughs> Albert, you know, I think Doug makes a really uh, important point, which I think is subtle because, you know, being part of the media now, there's eight gazillion, you know, mock drafts and the amount of attention given to the draft is just incredible, which is candidly good for everybody on this call and the whole ecosystem of mm -hmm. football. But, to the extent you can make tweaks to your roster before the draft, it does take that pressure off. Um, most recent example would be Orlando Brown being traded to the Chiefs. You know, everybody in America knew Kansas City needed a, um, a tackle. Now, we could sit here and quibble, did they pay too much or too little? He's to the end of his contract. But it's clear now that Kansas City is going to operate from a much better position of strength in the draft. And I think Doug's point is just it, – it, it, to the extent you can minimize – and look, as Thomas said – when you need a starting frontline defense end, there's not going to be a young, high character, productive defensive end staying out there four days before the draft. So, you know, everything is within a context. But to the extent you can, like Orlando Brown may not be an elite left tackle, but they could go win a lot of games with him at left tackle. I think that's a good example of trying to take the pressure off because some of the biggest mistakes I made were exactly that. Like this whole notion of like, oh, we'll just plug and play him. And more times than not, that's when you get it wrong. And like I would think the coaches play into that too, right? Because they know the needs as well as you guys do. So they might be apt to say, I can fix that guy because they know we need this position. So they'll be like, you know, like they'll talk themselves into it, right? Absolutely. And that's one of the things you have to really temper the coaches because coaches have egos as well. And they're, they're saying, I see these traits and I can get it out of them. And I used to always say, well, wait a minute. College coaches have their livelihood on these guys. Don't you think they tried to get it out of them as well? You're the only person in this world that could get them out. <laughs> so that's that delicate balance that you have to say, okay, this coach can develop them, but how much can he develop them? And are these traits developable to a high productive player? So it's a delicate balancing act. And, and you also don't want to, as they say, poo-poo a coach saying, well, you know what? We don't think you're that good of a coach to develop a guy. So it, there's a lot of dynamics and a lot of when, – when people say about general managing, being a general manager, you're really 
managing people. And that's one of the biggest parts of the job is being able to manage an owner, a president, a coach, coaching staff, your uh, personnel staff, players, medical staff. You're managing all those people and trying to get them on that same wavelength to accomplish that goal and that's consistently compete for a championship. Albert, if I may, to, to, to Doug's point, um, I think it's up to the general manager. And I think, of course, Mike, you would agree. You, you've been on that side as a GM as well as as a, as a president and, um, and more. And you understand the importance of not just being, you know, the senior scout in that room, but part of our job was to really dig in and know our scouting staff, know our directors, know our regionals, know what their strengths are, that, is, that was part of my job to know the scouting staff inside out. There may be a guy who's really good at scouting receivers, but maybe completely devoid of ability to, 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 uh, to uh, work or, excuse me, evaluate an offensive center. That's up to me to know. While it is also up to the head coach and Dan Quinn to know his staff and us to know both staffs together. And when we know someone's coming strong on one person or another, we have our decision making and our meetings towards the end and say, well, look, Scout A, we know what he is, and we know it is what he thrives in, but we also know where he struggles. And he is really pushing up this player on the board, but this is not his strong suit necessarily as an evaluator. That is part of our jobs to make sure that we know more than just the basics of scouting, of course. It's so interesting, too, because, well, Doug, you can speak to this. You were in Pittsburgh for it. Like, for some reason, maybe you can answer the question. They're incredible at scouting receivers, right? Like, and... Like for some reason, like, like, and it goes back to Heinz Ward and Plexico Burris, but like, I mean, you can go pat well past that Antonio Brown, uh, Mike Wallace, you know, who you had in Miami, uh, Mike, uh, you know, Emmanuel Sanders. It's like all these guys that like, they didn't even spend first round picks on and they're able to like, just at that position to hit consistently. Cause it goes back to knowing the traits of the player and the coach is having a vision for him and that marriage meeting. They didn't want to try to take a player that is not good at a certain thing and make them into something else. It wasn't all oh, we can develop them. Let's exploit this positive trait from him. And if he develops into something else, that's great or, or better. But this trait, he can exploit it. And we don't have to spend a lot of draft capital for that. So again, it goes back to that vision and putting that player in the right situation to thrive. All right. So one thing that's interesting too that you guys were talking about was the concept of of rising and falling, and um, you know being in the media like we act as if these guys are like stocks. You know what I mean? Like in January to April, they can go up, way up or way down. Like over my years covering the league, my perception has sort of been maybe over time what happens is the public catches up to what the NFL thought all along on a lot of guys, right? Like because we. I mean, you know, I love college football and I watch a lot of it, but I can't watch it like a scout watches it. Um, you know, so like how much of, Mike, we'll start with you on this. How much of that is real? Is that like a guy rising or falling between his final college game and the actual draft? Well, I think it happens. And I, and I look back, you know, in my career, like I think that's where we've made some mistakes, like not to pick a scab at Ohio State, Albert, but one of my bigger <laughs> mistakes, you know, was Vernon Golston, yeah. who had an unbelievable workout. And I'm with Coach Mangini. We're trying to play a 3-4, and we're asking Vernon Golston to do something he's never done before. You know, and you do that in the second or third round, 
you can live to fight another day. You do with the sixth pick of the draft. That's just not smart. And I, I still, to this day, beat myself up over not the result, but we just had a bad process. Um, and there was a guy that, you know, worked his way up the draft board. Like for us, you know, his grades were really more accurate when you looked at how he played. He was a good player. He wasn't a great player. He had an insane workout. And, you know, we, we had a, as Thomas mentioned earlier, ironically, Anita, a pass rusher, and that was one of those mistakes. Um, but I think sometimes we, we get, we categoric, there's too many like categories, like he's rising or falling. So like, let's just take this year between Mac Jones and Justin Fields and Trey Lance. Cause I think the first two are pretty clear. And I think, and Doug and Thomas may or may not agree with the statement, but I think if you got 10 boards after the draft, I'm pretty sure those orders would be slightly different. So the fact that by all appearances, it seems like when San Francisco Trey update, they have a strong feeling for Mac Jones. That doesn't mean Justin Fields is falling. He's probably still as highly ranked on some of those boards. It just so happens that the team that coveted Mac Jones traded up. So we make these categorical statements that I just don't think are necessarily accurate. It's more about, in this case, one team's opinion of what they thought the order was. I mean, Thomas, Doug, like the con, like, do you almost have to govern yourself over like not? overrating what you're seeing like i guess it's like the recency bias right like that maybe you just have to be careful not to put too much stock into what you just saw i think what you do is when you come out of that fall and you have those pre pre pre-combine meetings what we had we had a board set on just basically scouts information talking to coaches at the school watching tape watching games and watching practice Now, what happens, though, is when you get additional information, be it medical, deeper dive on character when with uh, interviews with them, or you see a a workout that may answer questions that you had about this player. Well, I'm not sure how fast he is. And he throws a runs a nice 40 or I think he's fast and he doesn't run it. So that's when you start tweaking. But major falling and gain, maybe a half a round or a round. Now, something like a major medical issue could drop a guy two or three rounds, but we would always not listen to the media. We would believe in our process, believe in if we listen to the media, why do we need scouts? We would just listen to the media and draft off what the media says. So I always thought, let's put our onus on us. This is what we get paid for. Let's get our information and believe in our process and what we do and how we do it. So yes, guys can rise and fall, but not as dramatically and for the reasons that the media state. It's another point of our, of our job as well. And I'm sure Mike and Doug would both agree with this. It's, it's about tempering, you know, the, the sort of hullabaloo within your organization and the talk, you know, you have to make sure that you're very communicative with your ownership during that time, because if you're not, and if you're not keeping them up to date and you're not communicating well, and, and I believe both of you had very communicative, communicative relationships with your your people with your owners, to me, it was really important to communicate with Arthur regularly. And he was interested in it, of course. He wasn't a sort of a side type of owner. It was important that I made it very clear to him that when, you know, myriad mocks were coming out that we don't get, you know, we don't get off because we've shared with him our board. And he's like, how in the heck could you have, you know, these players where this mock doesn't have them? The mocks, by the way, I can't believe we're now even thinking about doing mocks. I think, Mike, you have a mock out there, don't you? I did. I just uh, like violate some, some it's fun, it's fun, right? It's kind of fun, isn't it, Mike? <laughs> I got to tell you this. It's way harder than you think. I mean, 
you know, like when you're with a team like Doug and Tom, you know, like you're so like focused on like, you know, we need like the ninth offensive lineman and they have to weigh this, you know, to try and do it for 32 teams, Thomas, I'll tell you, it was harder, but you could get, I'm guilty as charged. I can't believe it. I can't, I mean, it's <laughs> meaning like it's got to be complicated. And I start to look at that. And uh, obviously we're all looking at it from a different perspective. Now, when you, when you're myopically looking at it from your team perspective, um, obviously it's very complicated in a lot of ways, but when you're out here looking from a general standpoint, it's been interesting this year for me. It's the first time I've really had a chance to look at it that way in almost 30 years and it's different, but you know, again, this, this is from all organizations, Albert, I believe all the way, let's throw it over to probably Mike with the, the Pittsfield Mets back in what, 92, same things, right? Always trying to manage what's going on, you know? Well, 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 well played Thomas. I mean, that's, we can, we can really go back good. to Thomas being a, a groundskeeper in Cleveland in the mid nineties and working <laughs> wow. his way up to taking a team to the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's right. You were lying in the field, right, Thomas? I was lying. I, that was after I got back from Japan somehow. My, I don't, I don't know. I, I was, I was taking a circuitous route to the Detroit lions with Ronnie Hughes, uh, Doug. So, yeah. yeah. But as okay. Tom said, the, the thing is you really have to immerse your ownership in, in your process. And I remember in 2016, we were getting built a draft room. So I moved our draft meetings to Florida. So where our, our owners lived and said, you need to be sitting in, these draft meetings so you know what we're talking about about each player so you can understand why we are valuing these players at certain positions and on the draft board so there is no question i'd rather i always believed i'd rather have our owner hear it from my mouth than someone else's mouth outside the organization hear it from what our process and how we got to this decision then then wondering and questioning you always want to keep them in check with what you're doing step by step yeah and it's interesting too doug because and this is where i want to segue the conversation to quarterbacks and how they're sort of different from everybody else and you guys have all been involved in in first round quarterbacks right like you know doug you you were involved in drafting ben roethlisberger in pittsburgh and then um ej ej uh, manual in, in buffalo thomas you know you were around tom in in new england um that process of drafting him is probably different than drafting a first rounder, but then you draft Matt Ryan um, in Atlanta and, and, uh, and Mike, you were in New York for both uh, Chad Pennington and, and Mark Sanchez. Uh, how is it different? Like how, like how do you separate quarterback? Cause it's interesting. Like I've heard you know, living up in here in new England, people are talking about like value and like, like I almost feel like for with a quarterback, you have to throw that out the window a little bit, don't you? Like you see what San Francisco did to go up and get the third pick. Like you put that in the trade value chart and any trade value chart and the thing, I mean, there is smoke coming out of the computer. Right. So like, how do you guys is, is, is the, is the whole concept of drafting a quarterback in the first round? Is it like almost separate from from drafting into the other 21 positions on the field? Any of you guys can take that. <laughs> take it, Doug. Well, I, well, I'll start with this. I just saw something the other day. Since 2006, there's been 44 QBs that have been drafted in the first round. There's four of them that have won the Super Bowl. Blaine Gabbert, Patrick Mahomes, Carson Wentz, and Joe Flacco. That answers your question right now. It, football is an easy game if you have a car, quarterback. But the hardest thing in football is to find a quarterback. And in my opinion, I think it's a separate thing. The film says a lot. But for me and in my experience, 
the actual meeting the quarterback and doing it a deeper dive with him in a private quarterback workout or sitting down and watching him film, that to me is where you really get to know that quarterback and if he has that chance. And the true quarterbacks, have they, they always say they have that it. And you, everybody's, well, what is it? You just know it. You can feel it. Someone that walks through that room, in the room, and it has a presence about it. A leader of men, a, a, a personality that brings, raises everybody else's level of game up. Someone that no one wants to disappoint. Those are the type of characteristics. It's hard to get off a of film, but you need to have that personal interaction with them and you still are going to miss. And obviously, uh, after those stats, stats you, you, you're still really gambling. Either of you guys, my, uh, Thomas, Mike? Michael. Go ahead, Thomas. <laughs> no, look, I, I, I concur. I, 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 you know, I sit there and I think about, you know, one of the things that Doug's talking about, you just know and you can't, you can't get it off of uh, video. And, and there's some of that. What I find really interesting and, not to segue away from the topic as much, but we're evolving so much. And I think, you know, Mike, I know you're very dialed into this and you always have been uh, on the front end of interest in where analytics are going and, and the, you know, being able to supplement what Doug just said, like what a great feeling it is nowadays to have some really intricate analysis at a lot of different levels that we never had before. So we can go to our owners and say, I feel it here and I feel it here. And Oh, by the way, I also have something that can supplement this. That's a good feeling to know you have some backdrop with some, you know, algorithm algorithms that are really tried and true uh, that allow a lot of the, the, the owners in today's world, they're, they're not as much um, um, just living off of sort of old school thoughts. They're, they're definitely looking for something more, more evidence-based. I realized more and more as I was delivering some of my, my information to Arthur and, and uh, you know, his, his group, and, you know, that, that it was really important that I was backing up um, a lot more of what I said as I got further into my, into my career as a GM. What I might have been able to say, quite honestly, in, in 8, 9, and 10, I feel the last two or three years, I, I had to come packing, so to speak, because there's a lot more information out there that people close, you know, to your owners are going to have to an earlier point. I do want to get to the analytics thing too, but Mike, like building off of Thomas's point there is the distribution between subjective and objective. And I think Doug sort of got to this too, on talking about the it factor and kind of wanting to get to know the a quarterback is, is it different? The distribution between subjective and objective, you know what I mean? Like maybe you have to rely a little bit more on feel at quarterback than you would at other positions, but like rely a little bit on maybe getting to know the guy rather than just looking at what's on the tape. Yeah, for anybody that's uh, listening to this, I would certainly suggest Googling uh, Coach Parcells' 10 Commandments of a Quarterback. It's really, it's great stuff. And the gist of it is, like, you're looking for a battlefield commander. You know, you're not looking for somebody that's looking to be a social media star or, you know, have a brand. You want a battlefield commander. And that comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And that doesn't mean you have to be a rah-rah guy. You know, for years, Thomas was around a guy like Matt Ryan, Watching him from afar, he seems like a battlefield commander, even though, you know, he's not giving a team speech every 10 minutes. But um, you have to spend a lot of time in understanding what you're getting. And, you know, we had a very unusual situation in New York where, you know, Mark Sanchez came out. We went to the playoffs in back-to-back -back years, won 
four road playoff games, beat Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Philip Rivers on the road in playoff games. And then, you know, it went backwards from there, which is obviously somewhat unusual, but being able to get somebody, and I could just give you through the lens of New York, someone that can have extreme mental toughness. You want to be a head coach, GM to a certain extent, but certainly as a quarterback in New York, like that, it's just not a plug and play. And I think this is what Doug was talking about too. Like, you can watch tape of a guy that could throw beautifully at Washington State. Well, you pull that person into New York, they throw two picks, and you know it could be chaos quickly. And the, let me add something that I, I picked up last year working with Oliver Luck. He said that the truly good quarterbacks and great quarterbacks have mental stamina. And I said, what do you mean by that? He says a lot of guys cannot – continually process and end up having mental fatigue every single play from knowing the plays, the checks, reading the defenses. You have to have so much mental clarity and process things over and over in a 70 game, 70 play game. You cannot fatigue. And the ones that don't have that mental endurance and have the mental fatigue are the ones that fall off in the wayside. And the ones that have that mental endurance and mental strength, those are the ones that have that it factor. So maybe that's the most important thing that you can test this time of year then, Doug, right? Like you, you want to, you want to like drill the guys and that, that maybe that's the thing that you need to see for yourself. Right. Well, we, we did one year, we did a study. Uh, we, we threw on the type, tape of Tom break. This was after probably his second Super Bowl, And we said, forget, don't worry about a name. Just watch his tape, watch his combine. And this was a whole, we did it as group scouting staff. We all said, Accurate guy, arms okay, not very athletic, pocket passer, fifth, sixth round. Still would have put put him there. So then we de- delved deep into his background and his makeup. He, if you look, thought of, if you think about it, at Michigan, they were always trying to supplant him, and he rose to the challenge every time and ended up winning the job and went and taking them to bowl games and winning bowl games. So that's where we said. That's where you got to start looking at this person's makeup and what have driven them or gotten them to where they are now. Not always on physical ability, but also that off the field and that that character makeup of, of that person should play into it. But to add what Tom is saying, now I think is great with the analytics approach. You can also what the way we looked at it is if analytics went along with what you felt and what you saw on tape, great. If analytics opposed what you felt and what you saw, that's when it's time like, okay, let's go back and really look and see if we're missing something. So, But I truly believe that that numerical evidence-based material and information to help support a decision is the wave of the future and it helps eliminate a lot of mistakes. I promise we're going to get to the analytics thing. There's one last thing I got to ask you because I know Tom Brady has caused a lot of pain to the people on this call, um, all three of you. But there is one guy here who's worked with him um, and been, you know, in the building with him. Is there something that you always took with you from the experience of having seen Tom Brady drafted and developed, Thomas? Yeah, I, I mean, I came in a little bit after it. Of course, I would say. I, I've always taken a lot of pride in, in saying that I was around him, watching him too. Exactly what both Doug and and Mike are saying. It factor the element of his competition, his competitiveness, uh, his focus. Uh, it was it was uncanny. I thought I'd not been around it. It wasn't like 
you know, of course we all saw what he looked like when he had his shirt off and when he first came out and we, you know, it wasn't like he was, he took the world by storm that way. Looks like Mac Jones, right? Potentially <laughs> that's right. Um, but watching him navigate around the entire organization and, you know, on top of practice in and practice out. And of course I traveled a lot cause I was on the road, you know, I've talked ad nauseum with Pioli about this and, and what we saw in, in Tom Brady. And I felt like it really did help me in my approach to, you know, to where, where we were with Matt Ryan, because in the end you can have athleticism, you can have, you know, acute awareness and intelligence. Uh, you can have a, you know, like, again, a really strong arm, but if you don't have that element, the leadership side, the ability to be not only the leader of the offense and the receivers, I continue to come back to this, but can have the entire team and the respect from guys like Laurie Malloy and Teddy Bruschi in, in, in uh, Tom Brady's case and uh, Vrabel. I mean, those guys aren't easy, easy guys on the other side of the ball to win over. And uh, of course he did. So I thought that was amazing to see that. The interesting thing about this, and I, I do want to put my pitch in on this, the very person in the end, and I have a great deal of respect, and I really like Tom, of course, the, the, the person who added to my demise because of the, the loss in 16 Super Bowl and really, really helped Jason Light win the Super Bowl and be the best GM in the, in the world right now <laughs> is one's a villain for us and, and one's a hero for them. I, I just find that a whole other storyline. Maybe I'll write a book <laughs> on that one. I don't know. There you go. Um, okay. So now analytics, like this is obviously, I'm assuming it was a different world. And you know, what's interesting too, like I did a big story in analytics a few years ago and, and I'd heard some of the re resistance to analytics in football had sort of and maybe been a result of the fact that there was already analytics in football. And so it wasn't like you were starting from zero. Um, like film study is analytics, right? Like, like there are just certain elements, like situational football is analytics. So it feels like, you know, that this has been a topic of conversation like a, and a very, very well-worn topic of conversation for a while now. Like, and I know it's something that's probably tough to put in a nutshell, but if you guys can, where is analytics place in scouting right now? Like when, when you're going into this week as a GM, what's the proper place for analytics to, to play in, in how a team is drafting? You know, for me, I, I'll just say, like, it helped, like, kind of define, like, the fairway. And, you know, Wes Welker's probably a great example of this. Like, someone that was, like, too slow, too short, but he had, like, a great three-cone. Um, I just think when you look at the numbers, like, they want to help, in my opinion, like, give you broad strokes of a conversation, and you could go outside of it, but know that there's a compelling reason why. So I don't think it's the reason you make a decision, Albert. But I think it helps define the conversation. Doug? Yeah, I would agree. I, we looked at it as a checks and balance part of it. And one of the things that we wanted to always be analytically informed, but not analytically decision driven, because the most unpredictable beings on earth are humans. So you cannot sit there and say, this human every time is going to do this exact thing. There's not ever been an analytics that said, 100% this is going to happen. No, there's always that variance. So we wanted, again, like I said, to help inform our decision, but we weren't going to be driven by that decision. Both of you guys, again, well articulated. And let's make sure everyone knows, Mike does not have an investment in Sloan, right? You <laughs> <laughs> know that. I know you're, you're a big, big believer in that, and I am too. I, I love it. I feel like I haven't been in there in a while. But 
then I would take it a step further and agree with both gentlemen. And I'd also say that what I used to consider a supplement and more of a sidebar supplement, I feel like that supplement that might've been 20% is definitely rising. And it's, it's not again, ever to overrun what we are experts in, i.e. talent evaluating and putting together a team, but to know that there are more and more portions and, and parts of the analytic uh, study that comes out and comes to your desk as a general manager as years go on. I'm amazed at the difference uh, uh, and the intricacies of what was coming to my desk over the last two and three years versus six or seven years ago. And Mike, I know you would agree with that. It's pretty amazing. And sometimes you get into that and you're thinking, this is, this is wildly interesting and insightful. And then you keep yourself in check and you're saying, yes, but there's a reason I'm here. There's a reason Doug was there and Mike was there. We were there because um, humbly everyone was an adept evaluator. It's just a matter of taking that and honestly using it as a, as a proper and appropriate supplement. Well, that that's interesting then. Like, is there any, do, do any of you guys have an example of where maybe analytics led you to a guy you wouldn't have necessarily landed on otherwise? If we didn't use it. Yeah. Like I it just say, say it didn't exist. Like, like was it, any of you guys, I'll open the floor here. Is there anybody that can think of a good example of where, maybe seeing something, you know, or whatever it is, you know, and like analytics wise helped you kind of identify somebody that maybe, maybe it wouldn't have otherwise worked out that way if you didn't have it. I'll say uh, when we drafted Ronald Darby in the second round out of Florida state, uh, he came second in defensive rookie of the year. He was undersized, but we delved into some analytics about his movement, his change of direction and we started stacking it up with historic movement and change of directions of other successful corners. Um, that was one of those that, again, it, we thought he was good. And then I hate to say it, looking at all the draft experts of where he ranked on the cornerback list. And we kept looking around like, oh, what are we missing here? Are we that off base? So that's when we turned to the analytics part of it. And we said, the analytics are backing up what we feel. Now, uh, obviously, we think that was a very solid pick. He's still playing today, just signed a, another contract, I think, with Denver. So that was one of the, the times where analytics just it, – it, it solidified what we saw and what we thought. Mike Thomas? Mike? Are you- uh, no, I would say, like, there's been a couple of times where we've used it, like, to break ties um, or to sort of, like, change, like, the scope of a discussion. Um but going back a long ways, we had a guy, Jason Fabini, who had like a historically slow 40 time. And we thought, could he play right tackle? And then when we did a deeper dive on some of his other measurements and like how he played, I thought like what the numbers did there, Albert, was it just made us like redouble our efforts on everything else. We took him in the fourth round. He wound up playing left tackle for us. So I think, again, what it does – I really agree with what Thomas and Doug said. I think it's just more of a check and balance than it is a reason that's going to drive home a decision. So one of the things that I would, would say as well, which I find really interesting, I, I don't prefer to, to talk about the names here, Albert, but you can also get, take a situation where the analytics are, are thriving. We potentially had someone last year at one of the defensive spots. We'll just go there. We had one in, in uh, Atlanta back probably, you know, a number of years ago in, in Dan's, you know, early years that, you know, the statistics were off the charts. They're like, this is the kid you need to take. Oh, but by the way, and, and these two guys know it well, 
what we can't talk about legally and what we can't talk about in the in the media is this guy's got a substance issue this guy or or this guy is is a complete non-fit from a team standpoint he is deleterious to the success of this this locker room there's so many elements of that that you know when people are grading us why the heck didn't you take a b and c they are they're thriving the stats are saying this and the analysis is saying this and we can't you know, we get killed by our respective uh, media groups or whatever, and, and we can't really rebut, of course, because there's a lot more to it. You throw him in medical. He's got a degenerative knee, and he may not practice all the time, and he may only have a two-year career. So things like that that you cannot express to the public, you have to bite your tongue and say, we believe in our process. But again, that goes back to making sure you communicate with your owner. Because what we used to always say is, who are the owner's barber? Who's that person in his ear when you're not around? So instead of them getting that information from their barber, make sure that information is coming from you and the coach. I got you. Okay. Last thing I want to do with you guys. What's this week like for like, like when you're, I mean, like, are you at peace as a general manager going into this week? Like, like let's say, you know, you guys are back in, 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 in the old chairs that you guys were in. Um, how do you feel on Tuesday of draft week? Is it the haze in the barn? The work's done. We're ready to roll. Are there nerves? Um, you know, I, I'd assume some like exploratory trade calls. Like, what's this week like for you guys? Yeah, I think just to pull, uh, go, uh, go. What's the word I'm looking for? Build on what Doug was saying. Yeah. I think you really want to be like the point guard of information, and you have a call with the team about trading up, and then it's like. Hey, I got to go check with the head coach. I got to check with the owner. So there's a lot of just like heavy leg work in terms of like preparing to move up. You know, Thomas made one of the boldest trades in NFL history that obviously paid off phenomenally to move up the way he did for Julio Jones. I can't even imagine the number of times you probably spoke to Smitty, to Arthur, to Rich McKay. Like then you got to go back to Cleveland, I'm sure. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, to be the point guy on something like that. So all those things happen, Albert. And then for me, just to put a ribbon on the conversation, Laramie Tunsil, 2016, Miami Dolphins, uh, number one player on our <laughs> as board. As unique as it gets. <laughs> yeah, number one player on our board is Laramie Tunsil. We have a very good left tackle on Brandon Albert. We have a gazillion other needs, defensive line, corner. And there he is, 13th pick, and he's there. Don't have to trade up for him. And we fell back on our process. We made, obviously, a very good pick, and he's still playing at a, at a high level. So the point is, like, you do all those things. We're 48 hours away from the draft. You're doubling down in your preparation. You're playing point guard of information. And then with all that said, you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, um, I think it's – go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead, Doug. Go ahead. No, I, I, I'm, I'm like Mike. It's just making sure any loose ends, maybe a medical – anything medical recheck that you're talking to the doctors and your, your trainers about, hey, let's make sure we have all these guys – that have any question marks denoted on the board. So we don't, because once that draft hits, things are going to start flying. We want to make sure all our processes are the way we want it. Uh, it gets fun. And any exploratory trade talks, you, you sit down and say, okay, let's make sure, hey, if we're on the clock, these are the parameters of the deal. So you have that in place. So you're just making sure you, you're, you're crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and then you're sitting with the owner and the head coach and saying, hey, this is what this is what we want to come out of it with. These are the things that possibly can happen. And just prepare yourself for any 
possible thing that can happen because as they say, chance favors the prepared man. But for me, this is the day where I'm walking out skipping happy. It's game time. You know, it's, it's tough getting up to this week and that's practice and that's training camp. But this week it's getting ready for game time. And I always equated it to like a Saturday before a game where you get in there by 12 o'clock, you're out, you go home, see your family, get used to, you know, have, have a nice dinner and just get ready for, for the game. Albert, before I go any further here, what I realize here is you have Mike Tannenbaum with awesome Parcells profundity. And now I've never realized the Pittsburgh profundity from, from our guy, Doug Whaley. Like I'm really impressed. Like this is, this is really for your listeners. This is amazing. I mean, I love it. A great, great points. And I, I guess my last thing would be, I was probably um, more involved in the trades time during the Tuesdays on, I was really aggressive with, making calls up and down uh, the line. Like that was a big thing for me. I did not, um, I didn't pass that along to anyone within the building. Even when I had Scott Pioli as our assistant GM, who would have been more than adept to take that role. That was something I took a lot of pride in. And I was very involved with that. I wanted to communicate with these guys. I would call, you know, Mike or call Doug or call whoever, because we all, most of us get along. We all respect each other. We might not be that close with everyone, but in order to secure trades in this league, you better have good working relationships. If you don't and people don't trust you, you, you will fail uh, miserably on trying to secure some of those trades, whether it's back or forward in a, in a draft or whether it's for, you know, obviously for a player. So that was a really big part and an exciting part for me. And um, believe me, I had a number of them that, that worked out and other, other ones that, you know, made me just seethe because they didn't they didn't come to fruition but that's the way of life Wait, right thomas were you pulling your hair out on that like 2011 going into that night because you knew i mean i'm assuming everything was in place right like so well, like, you, pull- you know we all we all knew and we all loved tom heckard he was funny beyond and and i remember calling him because i woke up woke up in the morning and i read an article of course right what we do and i'm like write the write the pro football talk you know, Florida is going to be happy. We say that. And I'm, and all of a sudden there's this rumor that, that Bill Belichick is going to move up. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Get on the <laughs> phone right away. I connect with Tom Heckard and we all know Tom. Tom's like, no, oh, everything's good. We got a deal. Like he was just like chilling. And I'm thinking, all right, I went out on my bike for an hour and a half. And Mike, you and I talked about our love for getting on two wheels every once in a while. I'm taking these deep breaths thinking, you know, God bless me. This better go through because if it doesn't, I've been, I've been, you know, really um, um, talking to the owner a lot and putting him at ease about all this. And here I am a, a basket case thinking it's not going to go through. Boy, yeah, you know, take- just, just, just Thomas telling that story. Like I get a pit in my stomach, just unless you've been there guy, unless you've actually been there, it, like what Thomas is talking about, it's just hard to explain. Like it's, you can look back with joy and being, so proud of what you accomplished and how hard it is. But those moments, it's just hard to explain. It, it hurts so much because if you don't deliver, you know, you, you try to manage expectations, but there's so much out of your control. If Tom Hecker had gotten, you know, two ones from Bill Belichick and something else, like, it's just sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom's yeah. just you, telling that story. I mean, you were there with Sammy, right? Like, Doug? Like, yes. yeah, yeah, that was my first draft. And it was one of those, uh, it's one of those things, like you said, where I, I could go into the story of how we came to that decision as an organization, but basically it was, this is the, the one player we all agreed on as an organization that could help our team. So we had to go get him. And I remember talking to Ray Farmer and it was, and like Thomas said, 
you have such amount of professional respect for everybody that sits in that chair throughout the league that you want to be straight up with those guys. Don't try to pull the wool over their eyes because then your reputation starts to get soiled in the industry. And that's the last thing you want to do. So just talking to him and that morning, it was one of those things where I was like, are we on? Yes, we're on. But and this business, until that thing is signed on the dotted line, you really never know. And then fast forward it to my last draft in 2017. I can remember to this day, the morning, Thursday morning, I get a call from John Dorsey. And all he said is, don't get scared now and hung up. Because <laughs> when we sold <laughs> All right. Last question for you guys. If one word answer, we'll get you guys out of here. Does Kyle Shanahan know what he's doing on Thursday night? Is there any chance at all that the Niners do not know which quarterback they're taking? Let's go Thomas, Doug, Mike. No chance, but they have contingency. Doug? Agree. He knows what he wants, but you never know who's going to be on the board at that time. Mike? Agreed. Okay. Okay. So there's no chance that Kyle Shanahan does not know who he's taking on, on, uh, on, on, on Thursday night. Hey guys, this was a blast. I can show you my notes. I have about 50 other things I wrote down that I wanted to ask that we won't have time for. We'll have to do this again. Um, so we got former bills, GM, Doug Whaley, former, uh, jets and dolphins, GM, uh, Mike Tannenbaum, I know the fudge the title a little in Miami, right? Right, right, Mike, but close enough. All good. All yeah, good. and former Falcons GM Thomas Mitroff. This is a blast, guys. Really appreciate you coming out. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks appreciate guys. it. All right. Thanks to Thomas. Thanks to Doug. Thanks to Mike. That was fantastic. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We're going to jump into the six pack. You guys know how this works. Every week on Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get a like on Twitter. That means I hit the little heart button there and to get an answer here on the podcast. And if I don't answer your question on the podcast, I may have answered it in the mailbag. And we're doing the mailbag a little bit differently this week. We're going to do it on video. Um, it's going to post on the MMQB. We're going to chop it up and put some of the answers up on social. So if you didn't hear your answer read here, on the podcast during the six pack, there's a good chance that I got to it in the video mailbag, which again, I'll post, I think either late Wednesday or early Thursday on the MMQB.com and on our social channels. Question number one for this week coming from Swift Cuts. That's at Swift 32 Cuts. What are the chances the Lions trade back in draft night? Who are the potential suitors that are interested in the pick? If they choose to stay put at seven, who could they be targeting? We went over some of this off the top. Swift Cuts. I would say the 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 guys that they if they stay put that I would keep an eye on Panay Sewell, Rashawn Slater, Micah Parsons. If they move the pick, I think you know I any pick that's moved in the top ten, you have to say quarterback, right? And being at seven gives another team an opportunity to get in front of Carolina at eight, to get in front of Denver at nine. Would New England come up? Maybe, maybe not. New England's done some groundwork on getting into the top 10 so they at least know what it costs. Whether or not they have an appetite to do that, I'm not sure. Like, could Chicago? Like, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know if Chicago would be able to get sign-off on giving up future assets to go up. Um, and I'm talking about sign-off from ownership to get future assets to go up and get a quarterback. I, like, you know, I know people have talked about Washington. I think Washington's more likely to sort of stay put um, where they are. 
and continue to build the thing up and maybe drop a young quarterback in there in a year or two. I think Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney want to be deliberate um, in the way that they build that thing up. And so, you know, I way I look at it, like I, I think there's going to be, you know, opportunities for them to trade, but will it be worth moving off of potentially a Panay Sewell or Rashawn Slater or a Micah Parsons when, again, you know that there's this cliff like seven or eight picks below you where, you know, the grades that you have on the players might change. So I think there'll be motive that there's motivators. Anybody in the top 10 to look at trading down. I think like a short trade down with Denver maybe makes sense for them. Um, but I also think they're comfortable where they're at. I think they're going to be really good players there. They're not in a bad spot relative to the way that the draft class sets up. Question number two from KC chiefs junkie. That's at KC chiefs junkie. When would you expect a Julio Jones trade to be announced? Granted, draft, draft capital won't be used until 2022, but you, would you but would you think a team trading for him would want to know from a needs standpoint pre-draft? That's a great point, Casey Chiefs junkie. I think that that's why they're shopping him this week. That's why they're going to look at offers for him this week. That's why they haven't been shy about admitting that they'll look at trading him. Um, the new general manager, Terry Fontenot, is in a weird spot from a cap standpoint here. And if you look at the way that they're, um, they're the, the look at the way it sets up over the next two years. I mean, they're going to be sort of eating it. And so, like they've looked, they looked at one point at could we trade Deion Jones? They wind up restructuring him. They looked at calls coming in for Jake Matthews. They restructured him. They restructured Matt Ryan. Uh, Julio Jones hasn't been restructured yet. Grady Jarrett hasn't been restructured yet. So if calls come in on either of those guys, I do think that they would listen um, because I think they feel like they have to. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, a chance, a chance that he gets traded this week with the remainder of his contact being relatively affordable. It's just over $38 million for the next three years. Um, and his level of production being pretty consistent when he's been healthy. So can you pull it off? Maybe. I think because of his age, it's a little complicated. Um, and I do think like another team would want to know what they're dealing with going into the draft. Like if you're going to acquire somebody like Julio Jones for your team, I think you want to know that before you go into the draft process, before you go into, all right, like here's what we want to add here. Here's what we want to add there. Um, you know, so I do think that I do think that if you're pro- if you're going to get proper value for him, the best time to do it might be right now. Because there could be a number of teams that fill receiver needs over the next four or five days that may have been Julio suitors on you know April 27th that maybe won't be Julio suitors on May 27th. Question number three from Ray at Blackbod Community Manager, uh, loyal listener to the show at BB Ray Ray One. Does Herbert's push to get his Oregon offensive line really make a difference to the Chargers brass or any team for that matter with their franchise quarterback? Ray, I think it does matter. Like, and I think you should listen. Quarterbacks are quasi-management, right? And they're people that you plan to have in your organization for the next 15 years, people who are going to be carrying the banner for your franchise, people who are going to be a face for your franchise. And so I think it makes sense to listen to those guys because you got, you want those guys to feel like they've got skin in the game. That's the way I think it's been for franchise quarterbacks in a lot of places for a long time. And the way that they're drafted, the way that they're paid, the way that they're developed, the importance that's put on the position. I think that goes more now than ever. And 
I think there's another piece of this too that's just common sense, right? Like in a year when it's tough to get information because you know you had limited school calls in the fall, you had no combine, you had no 30 visits, you had no private workouts. You should be pulling, turning over every rock to get information. And I mean, if you're the Bengals, I think it'd be dumb not to ask Joe Burrow about Jamar Chase and his experience with him having played with him for two years at LSU. You'd be dumb not to ask Justin Herbert about his experience with Panay Sewell, who he spent two years with at the University of Oregon. Like, that's just common sense. And I know teams have done that. Like, I know teams have asked their own players this year, maybe more so than in any other year, like what they think of some of their ex-college teammates that are in this year's draft class. Because again, this year, information's at a premium. So do I think that the Bengals have you know, sat down with Joe Burrow and gone over Jamar Chase? Hell yeah. Do I think that the, the, the Chargers have done that with Justin Herbert when they've, you know, when they've had Panay Sewell up and they've been talking about Panay Sewell? Of course, they'd be dumb not to. Question number four from Mike Duran. That's at Mikey D underscore 31. Please just give me more feels to New England stuff. Ha ha. Mike, I, I, think the, I think the interest there is genuine. Whether it's 15 overall, 15th overall interest, I don't know. Whether it's trade up type of interest, I don't know. But I don't think that they that the I don't think the Patriots were going through the motions here and sending Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels and Matt Grow and Elliot Wolf, like power brokers in their organization, to Columbus to go look at Justin Fields and watch him live. I think what's going to be interesting is if they do this what it means for where they are from a scheme standpoint going forward. I can give you an illustration on this by going back to 2018. And there was a lot of talk about the Patriots and Lamar Jackson. And then I believe they had two shots at Lamar Jackson in the first round that year. Um, and they wind up taking Isaiah Wynn and, um, and Sony Michelle the discussion, my understanding that year for them was we like Lamar Jackson. Are we willing to blow up who we are offensively for him? Because we're going to need to do a lot to accommodate him. And this isn't just going to be changing one thing or another thing. It's going to be changing the offense in general. With Lamar Jackson, I think to some degree because of his skill set, because he's such an explosive runner, um, and because that's always been such a big part of his game, like I think that 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 called for a wholesale change. Justin Fields isn't quite that. Like Justin Fields, you want to take advantage of his legs, but if you watch Justin Fields at Ohio State, it's more of a pocket passer than anything else. I think people who watched Ohio State the last two years would tell you maybe they should have run him more than they did. Um, and part of the reason they didn't was because they were thin at, at certain points of the position and didn't want to risk him getting hurt. Um, but I do think that they want to do some things if you had Justin Fields to accommodate him and to facilitate his development. So are you willing to go through that if you're the Patriots? I think going through the Lamar Jackson decision three years ago sort of informed them in what they're going to have to do if they bring a young quarterback in. And maybe eventually they get back to where they have been offensively and the offense that they've run over the last 20 years. But I think there's an acknowledgement there that if they draft a young quarterback, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to have to make some major adjustments to what they do system wise. They've been somewhat reluctant to do that in the past. I'd be interested to see if they'd be more open to it. I actually think Josh McDaniels, their offensive coordinator might be excited to do something like that. Question number five from Gary. That's at Gary from the Bay. Is there really an internal split between Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers personnel department on Mac Jones and Trey Lance? Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Uh, 
I don't know if I'd call it a split. Um, I, I don't think everybody's in agreement that X, Y, or Z is the quarterback at number three. Um, and I think that that's healthy. Um, you know, if you want to know, and again, like I wrote about this a month ago when the trade happened uh, on the website, look, like if you want to know how they, 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 you know, Kyle Shanahan handled himself, it wasn't by locking himself in a room and handling the whole thing himself. He, you know, took a handful of his coaches. He took a, a, a bunch of scouts and he had them evaluate the quarterbacks over, you know, basically a two month period. Um, before they made this trade in the run-up to this trade. And he didn't tell any of them what he was thinking because he didn't want to taint their opinions. He did not want to color their opinions with his own opinion. And so, you know, I, I think Kyle Shanahan's handled this in a, in a really, I mean, I guess, I think logical uh, manner, and he's collected opinions on it. So he knows what other people in the building think. Um, and he and John Lynch have worked through the last month in assessing Mac Jones and Trey Lance and Justin Fields. You know, ultimately, he's the one who has his finger on the trigger. But, you know, I, I think the process has been pretty healthy. And do I think that there are going to be some people that in that organization who are going to, you know, sort of, you know, I, I maybe be like, like, damn it. Like, if they take Mac Jones, maybe, maybe. But I think that would exist anywhere. Like, right? Like, and I don't think you're going to get 100% agreement on a quarterback um, in any organization that's in the position the Niners are in, unless you're looking at somebody like Trevor Lawrence. Finally, question number six from Daniel. That's at Daniel F underscores 18. Why didn't the Giants let Devontae pass to take an edge? Everything we hear is about how they love him and would take him if he is there. Thank you for your question, Daniel. Um, I don't know why Giants fans, again, Giants fans of all people, are upset about taking an edge rusher. This is the organization that won two championships with Lawrence Taylor, right? This is the organization that won championships with Michael Strahan and OCU Manure and Jason Pierre-Paul, right? Like, you guys understand what the, 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 the benefit of having a high-end edge rusher is, I think, right? So I gave them Cody Pay in the draft. I wouldn't be shocked if they take Jalen Phillips. Like, to me, like, I don't even look at receiver as that big a need for the Giants. They signed Kenny Galladay. They signed John Ross. They paid Sterling Shepard. They have Darius Slayton as a young developmental guy in the roster. Like I, like, I don't know what people are looking at here where they act as if the Giants are desperate for a receiver. They really aren't. In fact, I'd say corner is a bigger need, and I could see them taking a corner there. I think offensive line is a bigger need. Now, I think they'll take offensive line later in the draft. I think they're going defense here. That'd be my guess. So if J.C. Horn or Pat Sertan were to fall there, I absolutely could see that. Um, and I think, you know, somebody like Quiddy Pay will be in play, um, as would somebody like Jalen Phillips. And actually, in my initial run at, the, uh, run at the mock before I deleted it and made a million changes, I actually had them trading down to 16, with Arizona coming up for Jalen Waddell. Giants drop back to 16 and take Quiddy Pay with the 16th overall pick. I also think it's notable that Joe Judge has connections with the staff that coached Quiddy Pay. The New England Patriots over the years built strong connections there. There was a pipeline from Ann Arbor to New England. If you look at it, over the last two years in New England, they drafted Michael Wenu, they drafted Chase Winovich, they drafted Josh Ucci, uh, Ben McDaniels, Josh McDaniels, brother was on the staff there. Don Brown is a native New Englander, the defensive coordinator from Michigan. He's a native New Englander. Jed Fish was at, the, was at Michigan. 
He, of course, is was on the Patriots staff until a few months ago. So a lot of connections there. And we saw last year how the how the Giants leveraged Joe Judge's connections during the draft process with the guys they drafted out of places like Georgia, with Kirby Smart, former Joe Judge staff mate from Alabama, from UConn, from Oregon, like places where Joe Judge has connections. So I do think that that's worth noting um, when you're tying Kawhi Pay potentially to the Giants, even if all you Giants fans get all upset about it. Appreciate you guys coming out. Um, as always, we want your feedback. We love your feedback. We need your feedback. We want your feedback to be a part of the show. And especially in a week like this where we're trying something different, like we tried with the GM roundtable. So you guys can get to me on my social channels, at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. You can also really do us a solid and get to us on iTunes. Give us a rating and review there. That helps other people find the show. And remember to listen to all the MMQB podcasts, our Monday morning podcast, and the MMQB podcast feed, which also features the gambling podcast during the season. I'm hosted by Gary Grambling, Jenny and Connor's podcast, the Weekside podcast, and of course this show, the Albert Breer Show. You can find all three shows, same place. Hit that subscribe button for all three on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows, we are there. Enjoy Draft Week, everyone. Same time next week. We'll be recapping all of it. We'll see you there.